This is a Reconstructionist radio production. Please visit kyber.org to download or purchase this book. The Christian Philosophy of Education Explained, 2010, Stephen C. Perks, Kuiper Foundation, Taunton, England, narrated by Nathan F. Conkey. Chapter 2. Education and Idolatry In the perspective of the non-believer discussed in the previous chapter, it is clear that man's rationality and creative genius are not derived from, nor in any way dependent upon, any source outside of himself, but are original autonomous qualities of human personality. Hence, man defines both his own nature and the nature of the world in which he lives, and he understands all things in terms of himself. Man is the ultimate reference point for every fact in the universe which surrounds him. Thus, in a revealing passage by Karl Popper, we are told, Copernicus deprived man of his central position in the physical universe. Kant's Copernican revolution takes the sting out of this. He shows us not only that our location in the physical universe is irrelevant, but also that, in a sense, our universe may well be said to turn about us, for it is we who produce, at least in part, the order we find in it. It is we who create our knowledge of it. We are discoverers, and discovery is a creative art. This is, of course, the oldest of all heresies, going right back to the fall of man in the Garden of Eden. Adam would define the nature of reality and of his own beginning, and determine for himself his place in the order of things according to his own autonomous rationality. Of course, this meant also that the Creator God himself now had to be defined according to the image of man, since Adam had made his own rationality the touchstone of all truth, meaning and purpose. The process of reasoning is graphically illustrated by the philosophy of Immanuel Kant, but which is basic to much modern thought. The following passage is taken from Kant's religion within the limits of pure reason a title which in itself reveals much about the idolatry implicit in idealistic and rationalistic humanism. Much as my words may startle you, you must not condemn me for saying, every man creates his God. From the moral point of view, you even have to create your God in order to worship in him your creator. For in whatever way the deity should be made known to you, and even if he should reveal himself to you, it is you who must judge whether you are permitted by your conscience to believe in him and to worship him. A more striking recapitulation of the rationale for Adam's original sin could hardly be found. Simply put, this means that man is his own God, for one's God is always that in which one places ultimate authority. According to Popper, the spirit of Kant's ethics may well be summed up in these words, dare to be free and respect the freedom of others. The spirit of Kant's ethics may equally well be summed up in these words, dare to be as God, knowing good and evil for yourself. Genesis 3.5 The ethics of Kant is the ethics of rebellion. The philosophy of man as God, humanism, will work itself out in two ways, either through libertarianism 
and thence to anarchy, or through a status view of man in society, and thence to totalitarianism. Both ideologies are very much with us today, and at work in educational theory and practice in our land, and have been for a long time. However, it is the latter which primarily concerns us here since statist ideology not only poses a threat via the local education authorities to the authority of parents in their endeavours to give their children a gaudy education, but can also exert great psychological pressure upon Christian parents to conform to the status quo which has been established over the last century through the tax funding of state education. It is important, therefore, that we understand this ideology and expose the idolatrous nature of the philosophy underpinning it. The Statist View of Man As we have seen, for humanism, man is at the centre of his world. But there are many individual men, and the ideal of man cannot be limited to the idiosyncrasies of any one particular human being. Thus, for statist humanism, the ideal man is always beyond man in particular, and is embodied instead in the concept of society. In this perspective, it is the idea of society and of man as a social creature which is idolised. But this idea of society is far removed from the world of real men and the needs and concerns of real men. This is because the ideal is always beyond the historical situation. This abstract idea of society must, therefore, if it is to become a reality in history, be embodied in some representative organ or institution on earth, which then moulds the historical situation and attempts to bring it into conformity with the ideal. This institution the perfect embodiment or true expression of the idea of human society as understood by statist humanism, is the state. Hence, the state is the divine idea as it exists on earth, to use, Hegel, to use Hegel's phrase. Since, in the ideology of statism, man is the creature of society, that is to say he is what he is as a result of social conditioning, it is the duty of the state to determine and regulate all the parameters and variables within man's social and cultural matrix, so that the end product conforms to the ideal of the perfect social being. In other words, as the abstract idea of society incarnate in history, it is the state's purpose to recreate society in its own image. As the head and guardian of society, the state must care for, mould and discipline in terms of its own purpose, those who will constitute the society of the future. It is not surprising, therefore, that the family is depreciated by statists and control of the infant from birth seen more and more as a state responsibility. The child is the creature of the state and society is his true family. Hence, should the child's genetic family prove a hindrance to his development into an ideal member of the statist society, its custodianship of the child must be suspended. This is not mere theory. While it may not be as obvious in Britain as the above analysis suggests, this ideology is subtly at work in our land and can be seen in a more conspicuous form in advanced socialist countries such as Sweden. We have perhaps an indication of things to come in the current attempts of some to prohibit by law all forms of corporal punishment of children by their parents.
In this perspective, man is defined by the state as a social creature. The individual is nothing except in relation to society, since his growth and development as a personality are determined and controlled by his social environment. Thus, education is necessarily a process of maturation into the image of man as defined by the state. The goal of education is, therefore, integration into society. Hence, we often hear educators speaking of the child's development in terms of his eventual usefulness as a full participating member of society. It is common also to hear politicians speaking in such terms. A man or woman is considered mature and valuable to society because he or she is a useful member thereof and able to contribute something worthwhile to the community. The individual only truly realises himself to the extent that he helps to realise the ideal society which he exists to serve. It is to be expected ultimately that those who are unable or unwilling to meet this expectation be denied the status of human beings, and either exiled in psychiatric hospitals and labour camps where they can be forced to serve the state as slaves, or, if they are unable to do even this, put to death. Such practices have been common in Soviet countries for many years and were, of course, a feature of the Nazi regime. Some of them are not common in the West. For example, abortion of deformed fetuses or even of a perfectly formed fetus if the birth of a child is going to lead to hardship or mental illness for the mother. The addition of genetic engineering to man's arsenal of social control techniques presents a bleak prospect for man's future under such an ideology. The Status Philosophy of Education With regard to education, however, it is clear that our definition of man determines the nature of our educational philosophy. It also determines the method and goal of the educational process. For the humanist, education is necessarily man-centred. Man is the measure of himself and all things. The goal of education is for man to realise himself in terms of the image of his God, whether that God is his own personal ego, as with libertarianism, or the statist ideal of society, or of man as a social creature. For the libertarian, the process will be geared to the individual and his needs, desires and aspirations at all points. For the statist, it will be geared to man's social environment, the purpose of education, therefore, is to equip the child to take his place in adult society by fully integrating him into the peer group. The peer group is thus the reference point for the child's development at every stage in his education. For statists, the lack of such an education is considered a deprivation, and to deliberately withdraw the child from this process of assimilation into the group is an act of cruelty. Hence, Although it must be acknowledged that the statist eradication of all forms of private schooling is in practice to a great extent motivated by envy and hatred of privilege, it is nonetheless logically consistent with statist ideology to seek to eradicate from society all those educational institutions which fail to provide an education which is thoroughly integrated into statist educational philosophy and practice, which of course ultimately means state funding and control. To be outside the social norm, as defined by socialist ideology, is an aberration 
which can only be seen as detrimental to the child and society alike. Thus, the methodology of stated education requires, first and foremost, integration of the child into the peer group. Without this, education is meaningless for socialist philosophy. Education is primarily a process of initiation or baptism into the society in which the child will ultimately find his vocation and which will define his existence as an adult. I use the term baptism here quite deliberately because of its religious connotation, for the principle of assimilation into the peer group is a dogma which is held tenaciously by the followers of statist educational theory, which is at heart a religious faith in an idolatrous conception of mankind. This humanistic faith exerts a strong influence on many Christian parents who have been misled and manipulated into believing that, unless their children are forced to integrate into the pagan social environment of their peer group, they will become inadequate, withdrawn and antisocial members of society. Indeed, it has been claimed that unless the children of Christians are thus integrated with their peers, they will most likely turn out to be schizophrenic and even malevolent individuals. Such talk can exert a powerful psychological influence on Christian parents who are considering withdrawing their children from the state school in order to provide them with godly education. The implication is that to educate the child outside of the established system is child abuse. It is vitally important, therefore, that Christian parents understand the religious perspective underpinning such views. In socialist ideology, no less than in Christianity, or indeed any other religion, man is defined by his God, which for socialism is the state. And the purpose of education is therefore to promote maturation into the image of man as a social creature. In other words, the state is the God incarnate, in whose image man is to recreate himself. Education is the process by which this recreation is to be accomplished. The Christian Perspective The Christian, however, starts, or at least ought to start, from a totally different perspective. It is the God of Scripture who has created, and therefore who defines man, and he has created man in his own image. The aim of education is thus to promote maturation in the image of God. And it is the duty of Christian parents to care for the child, mould his character and discipline him in terms of God's purpose for his life. According to the Westminster Shorter Catechism, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And God created man, male and female, after his own image, in knowledge righteousness and holiness, with dominion over the creatures. The purpose of a Christian education is, therefore, to enable the child to shoulder the responsibilities and privileges of being God's image-bearer and to equip him for a life of service to God as his vicegerent on earth. Since it is God who defines man, not society or the state, the role of the peer group and the process of socialization will not be of primary importance. Society, as a group of individuals holding certain things in common and sharing a common mode of life, is itself a subsidiary aspect of the human condition, for Adam originally was alone as a human being. He was not, however, on that account, any the less human, for his humanity consisted in his being 
God's image bearer. Everything which sets man apart from the animals, and thus which constitutes his humanity, is to be found in the fact that he is created in the image of God. Man's need for communion or fellowship is also primarily related to the fact that he bears God's image, for in the Godhead there is communion between the persons of the Trinity. Thus, man, as a dependent creature, bearing God's image, stands in need of communion also. But, and this is the point which is of fundamental importance here, since man is God's creature and the bearer of his image, his need for communion consists, first and foremostly, in the need for communion with God, not man. As God's image bearer, Adam stood in a covenant relation to God before he stood in relation to any other human being. It was his position in relation to God as his image bearer, not man, which constituted his humanity. For Adam was created alone as the first human being before Eve was created. The communion of man with man, or society, is thus a derivative of the human condition, not its defining feature. The existence of community and of covenant relations between men is a result of the fact that man is a covenantal creature by nature, created in God's image for communion with him. In other words, man was indeed created for fellowship, but for fellowship with God first of all, and with man secondarily. This is clearly demonstrated by the fact that when this communion with God is broken, man's communion with his fellow creatures disintegrates also. Our times demonstrate this very well in many ways. An obvious example is the amazing divorce rate today in the West. In this connection, R.J. Rushdoony has drawn attention to the fact that one of the key concepts in our age of psychoanalysis is alienation, the breakdown of community and communications between men. Since it is God who defines man, human society correctly constituted is a group of people covenanted or in communion together under God. The community which rejects this definition of society and seeks to order its life independently of God's word will not ultimately stand nor endure in history. Thus, approximately 21 civilizations have risen and perished in the course of history, and Western civilization is now in the process of decline also, for it has rejected the one who alone is able to provide man with a true basis for social cohesion and long-term cultural stability. Man cannot ultimately achieve lasting communion with each other on any basis other than communion with God. This is because, as God's image-bearer, communion with God is of primary importance for man, and therefore the only stable foundation for true communion between men. Of course, being able to associate and work with others is an important part of the child's growth and development, and we should not deny this. But we must understand that the reference point for every aspect of our social life, no less than for our personal devotional life, is God and our covenant and communion with him, not our fellow man. As Christians, we regulate our behaviour with believers and non-believers according to God's word. For our communion with others, if it is to be communion in any meaningful sense, must be based on the fact that we share a common nature which is created in the image of God. Were this not true, man's relationship with his fellow humans 
would be no different to the relationships which exist between animals. Man's need for fellowship and communion, however, is more than the need for biological union for the sake of self-preservation and preservation of the species. There are indeed many animal societies which work admirably on a, on a biological and instinctual level, but this is where they stop. Man's need for communion and society is above this. It is not merely animal in nature, but is based on the need for communion with others who bear God's image. The existence of human society, therefore, is not primarily a biological fact, but a spiritual fact, that is to say, based on the communicable attributes of God. And for this reason, human society is subordinate to, and derived from, man's capacity for communion with God. Of course, it is true that God created man male and female, Genesis 1.27, and that man was not meant to exist entirely on his own as a human being. When Adam had named all the animals, there was still not found a helper suitable for him, and therefore God created Eve to be his wife, Genesis 2.21-23. What has been said above is not intended to depreciate or minimise the importance and value of human society, and it is recognised that mankind ordinarily finds the fulfilment of his being and calling as God's image-bearer, and hence glorifies God truly in the setting of human companionship. Thus we are told that, the Lord said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Genesis 2.18 Marriage, family life and society generally are expressions of important aspects of man's nature. Human society is a God-created fact of life which must not be denied. My intention is simply to stress two important points. First, that human society does not define mankind. That is to say, it is not what makes man human. For the Christian, it is the fact that man is created in the image of God that makes him human. Whereas for the socialist, man is defined by society, that is, he finds his nature, meaning and purpose in relation to the society of which he is a part and which he exists to serve in one form or another. Secondly, human society, if it is to be truly human and thus meaningful, that is to say, if it is to be the communion and companionship that God intended it to be, must be based on the prior necessity of communion with God, since this communion with God is essential to the proper expression of human life, and hence of human companionship and society, which is an aspect of human life. The Religious Nature of Education Thus, our definition of man, what he is, where he comes from, what the purpose of his existence is, etc., is the determining factor in our understanding of what education is and governs both the aims of education and the methods used to achieve these aims. For the non-believer, no less than for the Christian, therefore, the meaning, method and goal of education is based inescapably on metaphysical, that is, religious presuppositions about the nature of man. For the Christian, education is necessarily a process of maturation in the image of God, for this is precisely the purpose for which man was created, viz. to image God on earth. Thus, the peer group is a secondary factor in education, and the process of socialization must always be seen 
in the light of man's higher calling to image and glorify God on earth. Man's first allegiance is to God. It is vitally important that Christian parents realize this and refuse to bow down to in the idolatrous notion of the primacy of the peer group. God has created and defined man in his own image, and we are to nurture and educate our children in conformity to his image, not that of apostate men. Our concern for social integration, provided it is seen in a secondary place and is subject to the necessity of obedience to God's word, is, of course, a valid concern. But, sending our children to be integrated into the pagan image of man by subjecting them to peer group pressure is not the answer to the valid concerns that Christian parents might have about their children being educated at home without the same degree of contact with other children that the average non-believer has. This is not to say that Christian children should not mix or play with non-believing children, but it is to say that they should not be educated as non-believers. And that is precisely what will happen if they are educated in state schools or pagan private schools. Furthermore, it should be said that it is precisely because the Christian sees man's need for communion first and foremostly as the need for communion with God, and precisely because he sees education in the light of this principle, that those children who are educated at home or in Christian schools in terms of this Christian philosophy so often turn out to be the ones who are more able to function as responsible members of society. Such children are generally more mature, both intellectually and in terms of character and general competence, than the average member of the pagan peer group. Christian children, thus educated, are a stable element in society, since they are generally more well-balanced and have in their faith a true basis for social cohesion. It simply is not true that such an education produces inward-looking, inadequate individuals. On the contrary, not only do such children usually achieve consistently better academic results and prove to be generally more mature and able to mix socially, but their ability to socialise is often at a higher level and related more to the adult world. The Guiding Principle in Education Maturity versus immaturity. This last point, however, is likely to bring out a salient feature of the prevailing mentality of our age, especially in its expectations of children. Because the non-believer does not see man as God's creature, created originally as a mature human being, he does not set the same premium on maturity. The responsibilities of maturity are burdens which he seeks to avoid. Men seek instead a life of leisure and play without responsibility. One can see this so clearly in the kind of advertising that is common today. Products are advertised by conjuring up images of burden-free lifestyle in which the responsibilities of reality are conspicuous by their absence. The desire to escape from responsibility characterizes much of our modern world. This mentality produces an infantile culture, since, at its root, It is the desire to remain as a child without responsibility and dependent on all things. For this kind of mentality, staying young, both physically and intellectually, is a major occupation and goal in life. Indeed, childhood is often seen as a kind of paradise or garden of Eden, 
Growing up is thus the loss of innocence, a kind of humanistic version of the fall. It is this mentality which is the source of the pop culture which dominates so much of modern Western society. Obviously, in such an ethos, the early development of the child is not prized. Children must not be allowed or encouraged to grow up before their time. To deny a child the unfettered enjoyment of his childhood by encouraging early development and a mature attitude to the adult world is often seen as a great evil. Children who do mature early and whose achievements are ahead of their peer group are considered precocious and labelled overachievers by socialist educators. Such children are seen as outside the parameters of what constitutes normality, since normality is defined by the group and the purpose of education is to enable the child to fit into the group, such overachieving is undesirable. In fact, it could be argued that a more likely result of making the peer group the dominant factor in education is to produce immature individuals who are unable to cope with the responsibilities and burdens of adult life and hence dependent both psychologically and in the end materially on the paternalistic state. In other words, that it tends to produce people who are incapable of being free in any meaningful sense of the word. The fact that our society faces this problem of dependence in large measures today should, at the very least, give us reason enough to review critically the ideal of social integration which undergirds the current educational philosophy and which is assumed so often to be the correct pattern for the development of the child. To set a premium on maturity, however, produces a culture characterised by progress across the whole spectrum of human life and activity. Christianity emphasises man's duty to God and his responsibilities as a mature creature created in God's image, in knowledge, righteousness and holiness, with dominion over the creatures. Westminster Shorter Catechism, Question 10 It produces, therefore, a mature culture which sets a premium on freedom and dominion in Christ, not play and escape from reality. It is no accident that it is the Western world, Christendom, with all its faults and failures, which alone has given us the kind of cultural, scientific and economic progress which has made the modern world possible, and a more humane and civilised world in which to live. Conclusion As Christians, we must reject the pagan outlook. The purpose of a Christian education is to enable the child to grow in the image of God into a mature adult, to equip him to shoulder his responsibilities as God's image-bearer and provide him with the tools to fulfil his creation mandate to extend his dominion over the earth as God's vicegerent. This is the purpose of man's existence and an education which is not geared to enabling the child to fulfil this purpose is a failure, for it withholds him from his development into a mature human being. We are not at liberty as Christians, to subject our children to an education which baptises them into the godless image of fallen man. Man's humanity consists in his being the bearer of God's image, and it is this image which is of primary importance and the reference point in the child's education at every level. Christian parents need to reassess their understanding of priorities here, When the biblical priorities are reasserted in educational theory and practice, the child will benefit 
and mature more quickly in terms of God's purpose, thereby enabling him to play his part in the society for the glory of God. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit reconstructionistradio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.